At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 331st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Is your resolution this year to have a healthier diet and grow some of your own vegetables? Starting your own garden doesn't need to be a challenge. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who can turn waste into gold. We're talking with Zach Brooks about composting with worms and a few other very interesting sustainability projects. Zach, semi-retired from the healthcare management industry at the age of 42, when his consulting company went public. And when his first of three grandchildren were born, he went back to Arizona State University to get a second master's degree in sustainability. Frustrated that most causes of climate change were not only fixable, but fixable with off-the-shelf practices and technologies, Zach set out to prove that an off-the-grid lifestyle could be every bit as comfortable as a wasteful lifestyle and have a positive impact on the environment. He wants to show we don't need some new invention. We just need to use the solar and wind power we have now and nature's method of organic composting, natural mulching, smart growing, and less silly waste. On his farm, worm composting is key with the worms turning garbage into fertilizer and serving as a food for the chickens. Welcome to the show today, Zach. Are you ready to rock worm composting? Absolutely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. So I was fortunate enough to be able to semi-retire quite young. My first of three grandchildren were born, and and I I began to worry about projections of climate change. It was the, the thing that kept me up at night. I went back to ASU to get a degree in sustainability, and what I learned was that there's an awful lot of stuff that we can do that's relatively simple and relatively straightforward and available off the shelf. It's no longer leading edge or bleeding edge. It's stuff you can go down to Home Depot and buy that can have a dramatic impact on our neighborhood and on the world. And I decided I really was done with the corporate world and wanted to give it a shot myself. Mm-hmm. So I bought a piece of land in South Phoenix and decided that I would turn that piece of land into a sustainability experiment. And my fantasy, my goal is to turn that small piece of land, 30 acres, into a operating full circle farm in the realm of the Joe Salatin type farms, mm-hmm. where we produce food, shelter, energy, and entertainment enough for 30 families, 120 people. And we're starting on 10 acres to try and get food, shelter, 
energy, everything we need for 10 families, 10 houses on 10 acres. Wow. We're moving down that line. We're moving actually quite rapidly towards that. We have plans completed for an eco-friendly house Uh that will be completely off the grid. We have rainwater collection system in place. We have food in place. And and the only inputs right now are other people's garbage, which is why worms are so magical in completing our circle. Exactly. So let's talk about other people's garbage. How are you, you're fueling this entire 30 acres with other people's garbage. Tell us what that looks like. So we get inputs, we get deliveries from people, from companies, partners, business partners of ours that do landscape maintenance. And so they bring us their mulch that prepare the bagged salads that people buy in the grocery store. They oh, bring yeah. us their green waste. And then we have stable partners, horse stables that bring us horse manure. And so right now, those are the three primary inputs. We have a brand new diesel cooker that's being installed in a little over two weeks that'll let us collect used vegetable oil and convert that vegetable oil into fuel for our big tractors. We have solar panels and a, and a solar array that converts the sun into electricity. And we have plans for wind generation, although wind generation is not a particularly viable source of electricity in, right. in Arizona. Yeah. But again, our plan is to grow or collect enough stuff to be able to power everything that we need to do in a, in a green and ecological way. And we're very proud of the fact that we take tons and tons of material out of the landfill a- every week. So the things that feed our worms and feed our mm-hmm. chickens and will eventually feed our goats and pigs are things that would ordinarily go into the landfill and create methane gas. And instead, we use them to capture carbon on our farm and cool our immediate area. Wow. You know, one of the thoughts that I had when you said off-the-shelf Home Depot, it was like, all right, we'll see, maybe. But everything that you just mentioned, I was kind of correlating it to the Home Depot trip. And you're right. It's all stuff that can be accumulated really in easy, from easy places. And it's all technology that has been around for decades for people to use. The brilliant flash that I got while I was sitting in a class, one of the ASU professors in the College of Sustainability was lecturing on the things that are needed to get done to transform from what's really a very wasteful and and non-sustainable process to a more sustainable process Mm -hmm. are technologies, which, so I get a confession, I get bored in some of these classes and so I'm Googling (laughs) they're talking about it. And you can buy them all. You can go on to Amazon or Home Depot or somebody else. And all the things that we're describing, we bought online. You can get your worms, and you can get worm composting processes and systems that produce tremendous fertilizer for your for your fields. Mm-hmm. You can buy all of the solar stuff that you need to buy is available at the click of a button. It's relatively straightforward to install and remarkably efficient and effective. We've had our solar array in place powering our office and tiny home that we have on the property uh-huh. for almost a year. Wow. Uh, we've never run out of electricity and the place is as cool as you want it to be. It's as warm as you want it to be. We do our cooking. Now, we bought eco-friendly refrigerators and cooktops and ovens and water heaters. Yep. But those are things that are all available. A mini split, which is a small air conditioning system. Yep. We can cool this whole thing with a one-ton unit that's relatively inexpensive. doesn't take a lot of electricity, and it's hugely efficient. So it's a 30-seer. Most houses in Phoenix are somewhere between 14 or 16 or or 18-seer. Right. So we have to get a more efficient one. 
but it's readily available. You can you can go online today and buy those products. Yeah, I actually put a mini split system on my office here at the Urban Farm, and I love it. You know, it seems real efficient, and it works. Yeah, they're they're very efficient. Use very little electricity. They're easy on the planet. And again, what I'd encourage you to do, Greg, is to now go get a solar array so that it's powered by the sun. You'll mm-hmm. never pay an electric bill again. Yeah. Well, I do have two kilowatts of solar panels on the roof here at the urban farm that got put in in 2006. So I am doing a little bit of that. Good. One of the things I wanted to ask you is how how are you storing electricity? If you're off grid, how are you storing this electricity? So we have a battery array. We have uh, flooded acid batteries. Uh We have a Tesla power wall on order for the eco house. I was wondering about that. Yeah, cool. If one does a really good job of insulating insulating the house and buying energy-efficient appliances, you just don't need a ton of battery storage to be able to power your house. Mm-hmm. Old forklift batteries work great. They're oh. inexpensive, and that's today's off-the-shelf technology. But the future is, is going to be the thing that comes beyond the lithium-ion battery. There's a lot of work going on today. But again, I, what we chose to do, what I chose to do, is to buy stuff that's proven tested, installed, readily available. Sometimes they're a little more money than you'd like to spend, but Mm -hmm. Tesla makes a power wall for exactly this purpose. It's a very slick system. It's very straightforward and easy to install, and it'll store enough electricity for the house that we're putting in, which is only 800 square feet, heavily insulated, but it'll store enough electricity for a week. Wow. And we, we both know that it's very rare for a week to pass in Phoenix where the sun doesn't shine. <laughs> I don't know that it's ever happened. Yeah. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody. We fill our batteries by about nine o'clock in the morning. Wow. So one of the projects that we have going on is to figure out how to use the rest of that electricity that we produce mm-hmm. from nine or 10 o'clock in the morning until four or five o'clock in the afternoon. One of the things we do is that we freeze water so that when it gets real hot in the summertime, we use ice to cool our worm beds. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, we're taking electricity that would otherwise be unused and using it for something that doesn't cost us anything. (laughs) That's brilliant. I love that. So you also mentioned a diesel cooker. Say a little more about that, because I I know that's a technology that I've kind of played with a little bit over the past 20 years, but it's pretty there, isn't it? It is. One of the things that I've learned as I've embarked on this journey is that each new toy requires at least a undergraduate degree to be able to get a <laughs> It feels like that. It feels like you need to learn a lot. Yeah. What I did with, with the diesel cooker is the same thing that I've done with everything else. I went out and found the company that was, that was producing a machine that could be plugged in and operated independently. Right. Very simple. And they're, they're making it for us, and they're going to bring it out and, and install it for us. In theory, mm-hmm. we'll collect used vegetable oil from restaurants. Yep. Well, there's plenty of that here. Right. Lots and lots of people eating French fries. And what's left over with the French fries is a, is a waste problem for the restaurant. They have to pay to get somebody to come take that. And so we take it for them for free. And we'll you use a small amount of chemicals and you put it in a cooker and 24 hours later, you have diesel that can be used in a tractor. Wow. So we have an old John Deere tractor that uh-huh. we use. We go through 50 or 100 gallons of diesel fuel a week to, to turn our compost and, mm-hmm. and move stuff around the farm. And our goal is to be completely independent of you know, the, local, the local gas station within a couple of months. Wow. So we've tried, what we've tried to do is to look at everything, everything on the farm and ask ourselves, can we do it more ecologically efficient? Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we do without 
or can we buy stuff that's specific to our goals and objectives? And I'll give you just a really simple example. Please. We have water, you know, for our employees and our and our visitors. Mm-hmm. They want to get a drink of water out of our water fountain. They want to use a cup. Well, we can buy plastic cups or we can buy compostable cups. They're about the same amount of money. Doesn't take it's not any more challenging to click on Amazon compostable cups, either paper or cups that are made out of cornstarch. Mm-hmm. They work just as well. And when we're done with them, we don't have any waste. So within Within a couple of months, we hope to be well on our way towards a zero waste environment where we only take in other people's garbage and we use everything that we got. You know, about 35 years ago, I dreamed up this idea for a fish farm where you would take in waste, use everything in the system and only put off a product that was usable. And it sounds like that's where you're headed. Yeah, I mean that's our goal. And and in fact, you can in Phoenix, you can find aquaponic setups that do precisely that. It's easier for us in spite of all that I'm trying to accomplish. I'm an incredibly lazy farmer. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, things like aquaponics require a little bit more mm-hmm. watching. Yeah. Worms are awesome animals. You feed them garbage and you leave them alone, and as long as they don't get too dry, you don't have to do anything to them at all. They just turn garbage into a really, really great fertilizer. So it's easy for us. We have a rotation plan for our garden. We didn't invent it. It's done in, in, in urban gardens all the time. But we're, we're setting up no-till gardens. We put our compost down. We plant in them in, a, in an intelligent rotation of crops and uh-huh. add the nutrients to the soil that, the, that each of those incremental crops require. And we don't get weeds because if you do no-till properly, you right. don't introduce a lot of weeds. Mm-hmm. And so we don't till, which is take, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of work. Oh, big time. Yeah, we're looking at how we can do this in the absolute easiest possible way. And worms and chickens and goats just do a, an awesome job. I'll give you an example. Our chicken coop is an old hay wagon. Uh-huh. We put we put a solar panel on it and insulated it and have it evaporative cooled. So it, it works well, but it has a mesh bottom. And that coop, that chicken coop, we're going to put it out on our pastures and move it every day or two. Mm-hmm. The chickens will poop right on the pastures. They'll fertilize the grasses that feed the chickens. Nice. And we'll move it every couple of days. So we don't have to, we don't shovel poop. We're not specifically recycling it. We're not doing anything to it to compost it. We're just letting it fall on the fields. It eliminates all the odors. The chickens themselves eat any insects that show up. And so it's just absolutely the laziest way you could possibly raise chickens. But it's environmentally friendly. It's neighborhood friendly because, again, no smell. Right. No waste. And it's straightforward and simple. Wow. We didn't invent any of this stuff. We're, none of this stuff is, we're not taking credit for anything except putting it all together in one spot. Right. Our people have been collecting chicken poop and spreading it on, on their fields for literally thousands of years. Yeah. And they let the chickens run free in areas and they, and they saw that they grew better. And that's what we see. Our fields that we bought used to be cotton fields. Oh, wow. They were hammered with herbicides. Mm-hmm. because the cotton farmers buy genetically modified cotton that are specific to grow with those herbicides. And the land's basically dead. We spread 12 inches of mulch over a variety of the products. We added both living and and green manures on those areas. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting, we're getting great, great vegetable growth wow. out of those things that were formerly dead. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. 
Yeah, it just like just like Mother Nature. Yeah, and there you go. it's very, very low impact. We're not buying oil-based fertilizers. We're not buying pesticides. We're mm-hmm. not buying herbicides. When we do get occasional pest problems, we're buying natural approaches to, to dealing with those yeah. pest issues. And as your space becomes more in balance with nature, you're going to have less pest problems. I've seen it over and over and over again in 40 years. Right, exactly. So we're, we're working towards building a fungal dominant worm casting, which is, when you watch it, it's remarkable. It's seedlings in a mixture with our worms castings, they don't get damping off. You mm. don't see them, you see them a very, very high level of germination and a very strong growth. Mm-hmm. And as long as we do a good job of spreading our worm castings and our worm compost tea, nothing else, no other fertilizer aside from a good compost in the soil, we're getting vigorous growth, which helps defend against the typical kinds of diseases that you can get in your backyard garden and without adding the negative things that we don't particularly want. Right. Our chickens are healthy and happy and mm-hmm. running in our fields. We're not using antibiotics. They're not getting sick. And they produce a really, really pretty, tasty egg. Egg, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the vegetables that we're growing, same thing. And, and again, I, what I found as I started through this journey was that worms were just a, a magical key to this whole thing. They, they take garbage in. They produce a really, really useful fertilizer. They help us strengthen our soil. They help us produce the, the fungi and bacteria that we need to be able to, to be lazy farmers. Yeah, when you come down to the farm, and, and you should just come down and, and walk around, uh-huh. we can show you a set it and forget it raised bed that, that we put into the farm where we have a carve out, a habitat for worms that's in the raised bed. Oh, and yes. just by adding yep. food waste, we add food waste about once a week mm-hmm. to that. The worms eat the food waste and they fertilize the raised beds. And we don't do anything else to them. And right now we have spectacular broccoli and kale growing in this setting with big giant heads. We haven't added any chemical fertilizer. There's no miracle grow in that product. It's just the worms from the compost that feed those plants. And it's super easy. It'll live in Arizona 12 months out of the year. Wow. And that's huge because of the heat in the summertime. Right. So we we create a worm habitat in our raised beds, and we recommend that folks do that too. So we dig down 12 inches Mm -hmm. under the raised bed in a one-foot square area, and we put shredded cardboard at the bottom of that one-foot deep hole, and Mm -hmm. then we put the raised bed on top of it, the opening for the compost on top. We, we have pictures of this on our website, our Facebook page at, at Arizona Worm Farm. And you'll see that by giving them 12 inches down mm-hmm. and shredded cardboard at the bottom, uh. we give them a place that they can go. Worms will do fine in Arizona as long as you can keep the bed at or below 90 degrees. Right. They do super from 30 degrees to 90 degrees and, and, our, and 12 inches of soil gives them a place to go where it stays below 90 degrees all year round. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We'll need to get a picture of that for the podcast page. Yeah, absolutely. We're proud of it. A couple of things I want to touch on. You, you, you stated when we started this conversation, this small property in Phoenix, and then you said 30 acres. When I, when I hear small, I think, you know, quarter acre like mine. This is a sustainability project with teeth. You know, it sounds like you've coordinated this entire 30 acres to build a small village. That's 
still the fantasy uh-huh. and, and it's the direction that we're working towards. We're going to, we're going to put, we have permission from the city to put in one house. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put in one house and see how it works. We have our worm program. We have our vegetable program. We have our composting program. All of these things are slowly evolving into the things that we want them to be. We planted trees, planted a bunch of citrus trees, and we're, we're planning on, on planting more. I heard a guy, we were talking about when the best time to plant trees is. Mm-hmm. And I was told 10 years ago <laughs> is the correct answer. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're trying to be, we're trying to plan ahead 10 or 15 years and put in a whole forest of trees, both to shade the properties that were the, the things that we're trying to do and to produce fruits and vegetables for the farm. So we're, we're five, six, 10 years away from creating the community that we want to create. But I think that when folks come down and visit, they'll see that you can, re- you can reduce the amount of garbage that you throw away easily by 30, 40, or 50% with, mm-hmm. with very, very small changes in behavior. Yeah. And that's really good for the city of Phoenix. I think that people will see that some of the simple things that we're doing, like this set it and forget it raised bed, allows you to grow your own vegetables in your own yard very inexpensively, very effectively, and simply be a, a better steward of the environment. Yeah. And while you're doing that, again, my opinion, it's just cool. It's cool to go out <laughs> yes. into your backyard yeah. and, and harvest your own breakfast. And and I'm excited. I'm excited. We get kids out there. We have, my grandkids come out, but we get kids out there all the time who've never seen where an egg comes from. Right. Their, their eyes are, are open to what it takes to, to do this stuff. Yeah. And again, we do it as lazy and as easy and as simple as we possibly can. But we're and we've made some mistakes. We're 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 not as effective yet at tuning all of these systems as we'd like to be, but we're getting there. Well, and, and that's the process. You know, that's the process of it all. So I want to touch on one other thing you said before we shift, and that's this whole entertainment piece. And I, I actually want to change the word a little bit to edutainment because you're doing a lot of education out there, right? We are. We have worm classes about once a month where, where you can come down and make your own worm bin. We'll show you how to compost in your own house and create your own worm castings. We we love our worm castings, and, and we hope everybody comes and buys some of them. But we'd much rather that you bought a couple of worms and produced your own worm castings. With a pound of worms and a worm bin that's really inexpensive, people can produce enough worm castings in their own house for their own backyard garden. And that's that's really what we'd like to see people do is not throw that stuff in the garbage, but throw it in a worm bin and produce fertilizer for their lawns or their or their gardens. Yeah. We we host folks to talk about our our solar, our off the grid solar systems and our composting processes. So yeah, we are hoping to do more and more of that as time goes on. Beautiful. Again, part of what we're trying to do is we're, we, we want to convince people that a ecologically balanced life is just as easy and just as lazy and just as fulfilling as a consumer life. You don't really have to give anything up. We have air conditioning. Uh-huh. We're just not paying SRP for the electric to fire yeah. that air conditioning. We have, we got a TV and a DVR and internet and all that stuff. We have breakfast every morning that comes directly from our chickens. Oh, that's beautiful. And there's zero waste. Right. The eggs, you know, after we crack the eggs, we wash the shells and crush them and feed them to the worms. So everything gets reused. Wow. What an amazing project. I'm really proud of you for taking this on because we need more sustainability showcases like this so that people can see actually how easy it is. So thank you for doing that. 
I'm excited about it. As I say, it's my fantasy. Yeah. My, my wife calls it my mistress. <laughs> Boy, I understand that one. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. So over the course of a 30-year career, I've failed a bunch of times. And I think that what you learn mostly from the failures that you have is that if you get back up and, and keep trying, you do fine. But I'll tell you specifically, recently, we failed in interacting correctly with our neighbors on the farm. Mm. We think what we're doing is wonderful, and we can't understand why anybody wouldn't like it. But Early on in our process, we brought in too much waste, more than we could handle, more than we could process, mm -hmm. and it made the neighborhood smelly. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, we added way more houseflies than anybody was happy about, in including us. Yeah. I got to tell you that the first 90 days of our processes made everybody mad and, mm. and really were a tremendous failure in the neighborhood. And as a result of that, our neighbors are far less forgiving of our new experiments than they would have been had we gone to them up front, explained what we were trying yeah. to do, and proceeded much more cautiously in, in some of this stuff. So my major lesson is communicate communicate, communicate, talk to people, tell them what you're trying to do, get them on your side, and then figure out how to make sure that the things, the messes that you made make get cleaned up super fast. Yeah, we're, we're still dealing with the repercussions a year later of some mistakes that we made a year ago. I'm more unhappy about it than they are, but, but we made some people mad. Yeah. Well, you know, from a planning perspective, I have two degrees in, in, urban planning from ASU. And from a planning perspective, we always have to make sure that we're taking that into consideration. Yeah, it's a huge lesson for us. It's, it's, it's probably my biggest failure in the last 12 months. And again, it's a huge lesson for us. It's, it's cost us in a variety of ways. It would have been way, way less expensive had we done it right up front. It would have been slower. It would have been a little more frustrating to get done that way, mm -hmm. but it would have been a significantly better neighbor. I can tell you we're way better today than we were a year <laughs> ago. We'll, we'll be a lot better a year from now. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get there. Have you, so you've started mending those fences, so to speak? We have. Absolutely. Yeah, we have. Absolutely. What do you consider your biggest success? I am most proud of the people that my four sons have become. That's a direct credit to my wife who raised them while I was out making money. Mm -hmm. But I have four sons that are all very successful, very productive, doing good things for their families and for their communities. And, and that's really what I'm most proud of. None of, the, none of the tangible things that I've done approach the success that having children who have turned out to be good, responsible adults doing the right thing mm -hmm. the right way, that's as good as it gets. And what drives you? Right now, it's three grandchildren. Uh -huh. I was born and raised in Phoenix. I grew up playing. So I grew up at 7th Street between Northern and Glendale playing in citrus fields and going to Simon's Elementary School. Wow. In the summertime, Simon's School had a recreational league, and we would walk from my house to Simon's to play with other kids, and we went barefoot. And, and we thought that was okay. Exactly. Right. Summer times were fun. And I am driven by creating that kind of experience for my grandchildren mm. and for their grandchildren. Yeah. We used to talk about the impact of climate change in centuries, that in two or three or four centuries, significant changes would happen. And, you know, the 57-year-old me just didn't worry about it because I'd be long dead. But now we're talking about it in terms of years and decades. And I have grandchildren who will be at the prime of their life in the turn of the next century. Right. And I am convinced that we can create 
the world for them that's as idyllic as the one I had growing up. That's not to say that that you don't have economic challenges or wars or, or inflation or all that kind of stuff. But we can create in Phoenix and in the United States and then in the world some really, really positive things. And I want to I want to be a I want to be a part of making that happen in Phoenix at least. That's curious to me that you would say that. Not although not surprising. That's the same reason that I do what I do. And that is for our children and grandchildren. And I don't have any kids. I'm not going to have kids. But I look out over the course of the next 50 to 100 years, and from an environmental perspective, it's not a pretty picture sitting here. And so what I do on a daily basis is open up the possibility of it doing it differently for, you know, for those living after me and for those currently living. And so you know, I'm really excited for you about that. Thank you. Well, thanks. I, that's the critical thing that I learned at ASU. Mm-hmm. As we look out over projects, there's lots of people out there doing the right things in the right way and producing absolutely the result that we're trying to, to produce. And we can do it and we can yeah. do it easily. It was fascinating to me that a big challenge in both Germany and Sweden was getting enough garbage to power all the plants that they had. <laughs> really? When they get aggressive about recycling. Uh-huh and aggressive about converting waste into energy, mm-hmm. they ran out of garbage. And so they were importing garbage from Greece and Italy and other places like that because they weren't producing enough of their own. And I think to myself, what a, what a great problem to have. Yeah, no kidding. To not have enough garbage because you've reduced it so dramatically. And there's just no reason why we can't do that here. There's no reason why Everybody listening to this podcast, Greg, can't go get themselves a worm bin and not ever throw away any green waste ever again, ever again. Yeah, ever again. Yeah, And in fact, have a product at the end of that that is useful in their backyard garden. Right, exactly. So I, I just want to do a shout out to you and everybody out there listening in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Zach, is one of his goals is 10,000 people in the Phoenix metropolitan area keeping worms. And you've taken that project on, haven't you? I have, absolutely. And, and we're doing that through classes and education and hopefully a couple of, of worm festivals. So where can people find out about any classes you're giving? So either on our website at ArizonaWormFarm.com, spelled out, mm-hmm. or on our Facebook page, also Arizona Worm Farm. We have two classes set for the next, for the next two months. February 10th, Saturday, mm-hmm. and March 10th, Saturday. You don't need to pay in advance, but we'd love an email just letting us know that you're coming so that yeah. we can be prepared for you. It's in our new barn space where we will be breeding several hundred thousand worms at a time. And it, I think it's a fascinating place to come see and watch and Perfect. look at. We can show you all the things that we're trying to accomplish. I'm excited to get back out there because you have a barn now that you didn't have when I was out there before. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we do. I just want to also do a shout out for lifelong learning. I went back to school at 39 and got my bachelor's degree. And by the time I was 44, I had my master's degree. And I got them at ASU as well, and in the precursor to the sustainability department. So can you just tell us about, you know, 30 seconds to a minute about your sustainability degree? Because it's from ASU, the same place that I got my degree from. I have an MBA from ASU. I did not complete the sustainability degree. Oh, got it. Uh-huh. I was going through the sustainability processes, and so I did not complete the degree. First of all, it's a tremendous program. Oh, yeah. Very, very impressed with, with what Dr. Crow and, and with the sustainability group has done. It's a really good place to go, even if you just want to take one or two classes yeah. and learn how to do some of this stuff specifically. But the, but the career path after that is to go to work for a big company and help, for example, Walmart be more sustainable. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to do that. I, I 
I, I've done that. I played right. that game. There's about a half a dozen more classes that I want to take. You still got time. Yeah, I do. The the, the soil classes that I want to take are, are out way, way in the East Valley at the Polytechnic University. And yeah. so I just need to get myself motivated to make that long, long drive <laughs> once or twice a week. Yeah, exactly. But I'll do that. I'll do that shortly. Excellent. Excellent. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Any of the Joe Salatin books or any of the Michael Pollan books, mm-hmm. Omnivore's development are, are really good. One. If, if I could only recommend one, mm-hmm. I would tell you to read Let There Be Water by a fellow by the name of Seth Siegel. And the reason that I say that is it's a story of how a country, in this case Israel, solved their water problems permanently. They they live in a desert. They Mm -hmm. have the same water issues that all of the surrounding areas have. But through a combination of education of their population, the right kinds of technology and the right kinds of investment, they don't have any water issues. They have an agricultural community Mm -hmm. and an urban community that has enough water. And for me, it was really heartening to see that a country could tackle a significant problem Mm -hmm. and solve it. And it's the sort of thing that we in the United States should emulate. We can become self-sufficient from a water perspective. We can become self-sufficient from an energy perspective. We can become self-sufficient from a food perspective, and we can do it all without having a significant negative impact on the environment. And so for me, it was just a heartening book. Aside from the practical, Mm -hmm. how you do this sort of thing, It shows that if a society decides over a period of 10 or 20 years to solve a significant societal problem, they can do it. Yeah. Well, and Israel is an arid space like Arizona is, and they've solved the water problem. That's epic. Absolutely. Now, they have the advantage of being on a waterway, and so they have some desalinization capability. Mm -hmm. But we could certainly do that in conjunction you know, Colorado River water goes to California, and California could absolutely do more in the way of desalinization yeah. to take ocean water to to utilize for crops. But one of the things you learn in this book is that it's not just about the rain that falls. It's about what you do with it. It's right. about how you make sure that mm-hmm. there aren't water leaks, how you reuse every drop of water. This new house that we're putting in at the farm has a gray water system that will re- recapture and reuse virtually every drop of water nice. that's produced. And it's remarkably simple. And again, it's off-the-shelf technology. Mm -hmm. It's a Home Depot-type capability to capture all of the water that you use in your house and to reuse it in ways that are not harmful. If you use the right soaps, which I know, Greg, you guys sell at at the Urban Farm. Yeah, If you use the right soaps, that water is usable to irrigate crops. Mm -hmm. Our gray water system will take the water out of the shower and store it and use it to flush the toilet. Now, I don't want to drink the water after I've taken a shower right. in it, yep. but I don't mind using it to flush the toilet with, then that water gets, that water's going down the sewer. So there's no reason not to do that. My wife complains periodically about low flow devices mm-hmm. in areas where we're using reclaimed water. We don't have to worry about that because we're not oh, taking right. fresh water. We're, we're using whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? This is all way, way easier and way more comfortable than anybody thinks about. My advice to you is to try and be zero waste. It's easy, it's economical, and it's fun. Beautiful. And come by worms. Uh, yeah, and come by worms. And, and take a worm class. Take a worm yeah, class. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Zach. My pleasure. I appreciate it. You bet. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? So the easiest way is on our contact page at ArizonaWormFarm.com mm-hmm. or on our Facebook page. We respond immediately to emails and messages. Cool. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Arizona Worm Farms. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Also, visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Is your resolution this year to have a healthier diet and grow some of your own vegetables? Starting your own garden doesn't need to be a challenge. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.